Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And actually, um, in the Gospel of Luke, he does have a Sermon on the Mount that he, um, uh, that he preaches. Actually, it's a Sermon in the Plain, and so it's a little bit different, and uh, people think it's a different sermon altogether, but there are some parallels between the two. But we're not going to look at that tonight. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Who'd like to read verses, uh, let's go 1 through 13. Somebody like to stand and read that aloud for us? Matthew 5, 1 through 13. Okay, Gary, thank you. Okay, thank you, Gary. All right, let's ask some context questions. Where are we in this passage? I mean, we're in Matthew, obviously. What's, what's the situation? On a mountain, yes, good. Or on the edge of a mountain, somewhere uh, on the ascending heights around... Uh, a lake. What's the what's the name of the lake? Galilee. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that, but the Sea of Galilee really is, is a lake, and uh, it's the sometimes called uh, the Lake of Tiberias, but we know it as the Sea of Galilee. Okay, um, probably on the northwest corner. Um, who's talking in this? Jesus is talking. Okay, there's the Sunday school answer we're looking for. And then, yeah, that's right, it's in red. And then uh, the next question is, who is Jesus talking to? The disciples, right? The Twelve, maybe a little bit larger group than that, but uh, those who are his followers, not, not necessarily the crowd. It says his disciples came to him. You know that Jesus had many disciples. In fact, you could, you could draw concentric circles around Jesus and find that uh, there was... Uh, there were the outsiders who never really liked him. That would be on the outside. And then you have, uh, within that, you would have another circle, and that would be the crowd. There were people that followed Jesus around because of the buzz that was going on, that it was exciting, and there were things happening. They weren't committed at any real level, but, but they were there. And uh, the moment he said something controversial, they were gone. Do you remember uh, John chapter 6? There's there's other places that talk about that, but uh, it says many departed, and Jesus even turned to his own disciples and said, hey, are you leaving too? And Peter said, to whom shall we go? Nobody else has the words of eternal life. In other words, if you read the subtext there, Lord, we don't understand what it is that you meant. It kind of bothers us, but what can we do? You have it, you have it all. And Anybody ever felt like that before? Like, I don't like this right now in particular. But what am I going to do? Turn away from turn away from Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably had some times like that in our walk of faith. Okay, so you have the crowds. You have um, another group of people. We we hear about a, a number that's anointed and sent out in the Bible. How many? How many? Seventy. They have the seventy. Did you know he had something like seventy disciples that followed him? But but then within that circle, we would draw another circle, and it would be how many? Twelve, right? Twelve disciples. All right? This is interesting, isn't it? And then you draw a circle inside of that, the three. And who are they? 
Peter, James, and John. And then probably John would draw another circle inside of that, wouldn't he? And say, this is the one for the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, I'm his favorite. John would probably do that. But um, we have those different circles. And, and probably each of them represents a little bit different level, either of their commitment to Jesus or to the extent and and uh, prominence to which they're called. Not everybody was called in the exact same way that the 12 were called. And I was reading today, I've been reading this little interesting book. Nothing is super new in it, but it just kind of washes through you like something familiar from your from nostalgia. And it's this book called, He Came to Set the Earth on Fire. He Came to Set the World on Fire by R.T. France. And he was saying today that it was expected that disciples would find their rabbi. They would go look for the rabbi. But not so in Jesus' case, he went and found them. Not interesting? He went and found them as the rabbi. And so they began to follow him. And so now he is beginning his teaching ministry. Matthew, you can't exactly take the Gospels, except for, of course, the last week, that they're exactly chronological because Matthew in particular is known for his topical arrangement of the Gospels, that he arranges things according to theme more than he does when it happened exactly in the ministry of Jesus. Obviously, the the Passion Week that has to be at the end, the birth narratives that has to be at the beginning, and there are some things that are like general sequence, but there's some other areas within the Gospel of Matthew that are topical. And we're coming uh, into this large teaching portion in chapter 5 through 8 known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he brings his disciples to himself, and he begins to teach them in this. And what I think is really interesting about this is that he's describing characteristics of what it's like to live within the kingdom. Uh, N.T. Wright, who I don't agree with everything he writes, but sometimes he writes some really good stuff, and uh, he says this, if we think of Jesus simply sitting there telling people how to behave properly, we will miss uh, what is really going on. These blessings, the Beatitudes, the wonderful news that he's announcing are not sayings, try hard to live like this. They are saying that people who already are like that are in good shape. Listen, they're already, if you're living like that, you're in good shape. They should be happy and celebrate even though, he doesn't say this, but even though life circumstances in a large part are against them, they should be happy and celebrate. This, he says, is an announcement not a philosophical analysis of the world. It's about something that's starting to happen, not about a general truth of life. It is gospel, good news, not good advice. Follow me, Jesus said to the first disciples, because in him, the living God was doing a new thing. From here on, listen to what he says, all the controls people thought they knew about were going to work the other way around. In our world still, most people think that wonderful news consists of success, wealth, long life, victory in battle. Jesus is offering the wonderful news for the humble, the poor, the mourner, the peacemaker. Isn't that interesting? Like, it's all been flipped on its head. And and Jesus is saying that those who think they're powerful are not powerful. Those who think that they're weak and are coming at this from a different perspective and are beggars before God are in a good place. They're blessed. I thought as we look through each of these, uh, you can see some things. In each of these, he's saying something about the blessed. Notice in verses 3, 5, and 6, what does verse 3 say? What's the characteristic that's being described there? 
What, the poor in spirit, okay. And then verse 5, what's that one? The meek, and verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst, this could be actually in another category, but, but I would categorize this these characteristics that describe the blessed. There's the, the pronouncement of blessing, there's the characteristic that's being called out, and then there is the reason why they're blessed, why they should consider themselves blessed, okay? Can you see that, those three things in each of these? First, um, the pronouncement that you are blessed. Second, the characteristic of some kind that is being acclaimed. And then the third thing is that this is the reason why, because these things are going to follow, or this thing is going to follow as a result of that characteristic. And it usually, the blessing or the reward follows in some way, it's connected to in some way, the characteristic, right? The mourn, those who mourn, they shall be comforting and mourning. They go together, don't they? It's the natural outworking of what you would want to happen if you're mourning. So, I'd like you to notice that three of these are a passive quality of living for God. In other words, this is uh, who you are. It's a disposition of who you are, not necessarily an active disposition. Passive means that something is happening to you, that you, you are in this particular state, but it's not necessarily that you're acting in a particular way. You, know, you may be mourning, but that might not be some intentional thing. It might be that you're suffering and passively you're in this state of mourning as a result. Um, and the fifth one, the meek, these are those not who charge forth and take the kingdom by force, but those who let God bring the kingdom to them. You understand? And, and then verse 6, uh, of course, a passive quality of living for God. And then I'd like you to notice in verses 4, seven, eight, and nine, that this is an active quality of living for God. These are active qualities of living for God. So there's a quality that's being described, but there's an active part. For example, a peacemaker. A peacemaker is somebody who actively is making peace. Are you with me on that? So there's a quality that's being described there that is uh, an active quality. And then the third one is that there, the uh, verses 10 and 11 are mentioning a consequence of living for God. It's not like these people have done anything except they've made God a priority in their lives. Um, and in verse 10, what is it that, they, that, that it says will happen to them? Persecution for righteousness' sake, right? Or for righteousness. And then in verse 11, persecution again, I believe, saying, uh, being talked about behind your back or being vilified for as evil. Um, what was the other one that's in there? There's three things that he mentions in verse 11. Persecuted, reviled, what else? Insulted. Okay, so these three things, these are not things that you're doing as a believer. They're things that are happening to you. They're a consequence, and in that particular case, it the consequence is because you're a disciple of Jesus that these things are happening because of your connection to me, right? So these are consequences. And I, I think as he describes these things, sometimes we tend to come at these like commands, like God is commanding you to mourn. Well, we do need to repent and mourn if we're sinful, and we ought to, in some case, mourn the sinful state. But I don't think that's the exact purpose here. It's not, it's not in the imperative form like he's commanding us. 
he's encouraging those who are in this condition. Now, we ought to see this as a passive call. Yes, we ought to be these kinds of people. But these are not to be seen as straightforward commands. Jesus is more subtle than that. And the main thing here is the main thing. It's about, it's about living for God. That's what this is about. And therefore, those who are living this way will be blessed. All right, what's this one have to do with? Verse 6. Righteousness. And not just righteousness, but something about righteousness. What is it? Hungry and thirst? Seeking it out? Okay. So righteousness. What does righteousness here mean? This is a this is actually more complicated than we might think. And and maybe we're making it more complicated. Maybe it doesn't have to be that way, but uh, there are some different options here. And depending on how you understand this, there are Bible scholars that who are Bible-believing, evangelical. They go to church every week just like you and me. They love God that are going to come into at least two main categories. And then there's a third category that I only heard one Bible scholar mention, and I thought of it. And that's not because I'm great. When everybody else didn't think of it, I started to question whether I was even on the right track with it. But I'm going to mention it, and I think it underlies all of this and may not be the main point of what Jesus is trying to say. But what is, what is righteousness uh, here referring to? Do you know that the word righteousness is found ten times in the Gospels? Um, and if you exclude John, it's only found eight times in the Gospels. So if we're talking about the other three. What do we call them? The synoptic Gospels, they're kind of parallel. Maybe you've noticed when you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they're a lot alike. And then you get to John, and you're like, this is a, sounds like a different story, except the main character is the same. And then you come to the end, and of course, the same things happen. But John intentionally tells different parts of the story, because all the other stuff's been covered. Okay, so the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they bear a similar quality to them. Here's what's interesting about the word righteousness in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It occurs eight times. Seven of them are in Matthew. Don't you find that interesting? Seven times in Matthew. And only one, I think the other one's in Luke. So that's interesting to me. And so I started thinking about this a little bit and looking into it. And the word righteousness is almost always, I think there's one exception to this, six times I think it is, it's used of personal righteousness towards God, okay? Personal righteousness towards God. Remember how we said that um, words in English and words in the, in the Bible language, they don't, always, um, they don't always line up one for one? Do you know within the word righteousness we have, uh, which the Greek word includes justice, it includes truth, it includes righteousness and vindication, all of those are in the, the word that we translate righteous. So how does the translator decide? We have to use context to understand the meaning of this. And so when we come to Matthew, we find that he's usually using it in the moral sense of how we relate to God, how we live, how, what we act like, what we do with our lives. That's what he's primarily talking about. So here's the way this is often translated. The NIV, as we um, have read, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be, they, they'll be filled. The New Living Translation says God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. 
for they will be satisfied. Hmm. That's interesting. The Revised English Bible, it's a British translation, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. They will be satisfied. And uh, the Bible for everyone, blessings on people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. You're going to be satisfied. That's what it says there. You're going to be satisfied. And the Good News translation, happy are those whose greatest desires to do what God requires. God will satisfy them fully. Okay. So I wanted to draw out how this is sometimes seen here when we talk about righteousness. And we'll put it up at the top. Righteousness, it's a long word. Okay, so we've already talked about this one. And so let's say that one understanding of this is to be right with God. Okay, or to be righteous. Okay, here's another understanding. Is for things to be set right. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But then this one could further be divided into two. And one of them is imputed righteousness. And if you're reformed, you're going to love that one. And we love it too because it truly happens to us. And then the other would be lived. Okay. Can you under, can you read that handwriting? This thing moves when I write, so it's kind of shaky. And this would come down to justice being done. Or vindication. So here's what we have is we have this divide um, between two basic things and then a further division. And so when people understand this, the New Testament scholars, for example, understand this, they understand righteousness to either to be right or to be set right. Okay? So what do we do with all of that? These are the options. So the first option is to hunger and thirst to be righteous, which means desire to live right in the eyes of God. This comes off naturally those who mourn. Okay? And it also, the other one might come off those who mourn because we mourn because of either sins we've committed, which we should, or we mourn because of the sins that are happening in a fallen world, which we also should. And these things have to do with both of those. Okay? The second could be hunger and thirst for things to be set right, justice, Deliverance, salvation, vindication. If you're um, a first century Jew, what is it that you're hoping will happen with the Messiah? Restoration of Israel, to be set right in the eyes of the world, to show that we've followed God, we've tried to follow God, and that we are truly His people, and He's truly the King of the universe. That's what you want to see. So what's your hope? Your hope is vindication. We want to see God's people vindicated. We want to see justice be done. It's not right that the Romans should set up their temple guard or their guards within the temple and that that should be okay. It's not right that they should possess the holy land that was given to Abraham. It's not right. And so you have a whole group of people along the spectrum, all the way from the Essenes who just gave up on the whole system, all the way over to um, the Zealots or the Sakari who... Uh, violently took arms against Rome. And then you have a whole spectrum of people in between. But there's a lot of hope here that when this Messiah comes, he's going to do this thing on the right over here. He's going to set things right. And so one understanding of this is that 
blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be set right. They are going to get what they're hoping for. Okay? That's one. I don't think it's the most natural way to take it, but if you're a first century Jew, that might be how you take this. It might be. Okay? I think the second is a little better, but there's a third category I want to mention. Only, well, actually, Craig Keener and the ESV Study Bible, they mentioned this one that righteousness would be some kind of a roundabout way of saying God, okay? The righteous for the righteous, I don't think it probably is that because you would expect to find something like a, um, like a, a definite article, like the word the in front of it, and I'm not sure that that's there. But they're hungering and thirsting for God, and I really think that this lies behind all of this, is that there's a hunger for God in all of this. Okay, so that needs to be the case, whether you choose option A or B, and there's good people in both categories. I've got a list here of um, 15 different guys, 15 different people. Some of them are in both categories. They think it means both, but 15 different Bible scholars, and it's almost evenly split between them about which is which. What What are we hungering and thirsting for? Well, I think both of them are true biblically. What does Jesus mean here? Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. What does Jesus mean here? Does he mean one thing or does he mean another? Okay, so that's the question. Well, let's talk about the things to be set right. What kind of promises are there in Scripture related to that, things being set right? Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has, what? And, and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what's false. And then it goes on to say, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Vindication. Okay. What, is, what is vindication? Anybody know what that means? What is it? I'm sorry, still... Make innocent, okay, tax. Wrong set right, okay. Anything else? You're proven right, okay. So I looked this up, and there's two parts to it. One is to be cleared of blame or suspicion, to be declared innocent, okay. And uh, this is really important because throughout history, and Jesus promised this, the people of God have been vilified because right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And right now, it's happening in our world. If you take a stand and you say that homosexuality is wrong or that it's wrong to allow people to transition from gender to gender, if you say that's wrong, you're so narrow-minded and you're evil. Okay? And the last day, we're going to find out who's right on that issue. Right? We'll find out. Now, we don't have to be hateful about it because in the end, we win, right? It's more about, hey, look, here's the truth. You can vilify us if you want, but God will vindicate those who are his. And it's, it's happened with the Jewish people, too, that they've been villainized. Uh, there were times, even sadly, by the church where people suspected them of bringing the curse upon Europe. And, uh, in fact, I heard that when the plague was running rampant, uh, a lot of times it didn't uh, touch the Jewish community, 
And here's one of the reasons is because a lot of the Jewish people kept cats. So if you're a cat lover, you're going to love this. The cats killed the mice. The mice carried the plague. Are you with me? And the reason that Christians, a lot of them didn't have cats, is that they were superstitious and thought that they carried evil. It's interesting, isn't it? And so it actually was uh, kind of their, their undoing in a way. All, I'm, just, I'm kind of getting off track here. The point that I wanted to make is that vindication is to be proved right. Here's the second part of it, is to be shown blameless of, or clear of blame or suspicion. And the second is to be shown to be right or justified. So now as we think about that, uh, there's going to come a time when God is going to say, yes, I knew you. You did what was right, if we did what was right. And even though the world may vilify it or see it as something wrong, he's going to set things straight. And so, in one sense, we don't have to go around justifying ourselves. I think one of the things that you see in Jesus' ministry is that he doesn't go around explaining himself even when people misunderstand him. Have you ever noticed that? Like, he says something to his disciples because they'll ask questions. But he doesn't go, and you guys have this all wrong about me. He's not worried about that. Why? Because the resurrection vindicated his life. It did, and he will be vindicated even further, that uh, he didn't cling to his equality with God, but he made himself nothing and died the slave's death. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gives him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what that is, is vindication. All the world has said terrible things about Jesus, but in the last day, he's going to be shown to be right. You know that? All right, what other verses are there related to vindication? Psalm 37, verse 6, He will vindicate you in broad daylight. You might remember it this way, that He will make your righteousness shine like the, like the sun. Uh, he will vindicate you in broad daylight and publicly defend your cause. Psalm 37, 6, New English Translation. Psalm 135, 13 and 14, Your name, O Lord, endures forever your renown throughout all generations. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon forged against you will prosper, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. He will vindicate those that are His. So while I don't know that this is exactly what Jesus has in mind when he says, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this aspect of living for God is true. He will vindicate you if you live for him. He will not defend our bad behavior. He'll cover it on the cross, and he'll, he'll declare us righteous in him if we trust him for it. But he will vindicate those who are righteous. All right, so this is one aspect, and there are, there are several people that uh, want to go on that side and say that's what this is about. I think that probably this has more to do with your personal lived righteousness, that there is a, um, a group of people that are being, um, that are saying we want to be righteous in God's eyes. We want to be righteous in God's eyes. And uh, we want to be personally righteous. Let me come to that in just a moment. First, let's talk about hungering and thirsting. Okay, What does it mean to hunger and to thirst? Well, 
uh, it, it means desire, doesn't it? It's like a metaphor for desire, that we want something. I don't know that we understand this to the extent that Jesus' hearers would have understood this kind of desperation for water and food. Um, we were at a conference a while back, and the the guy who was speaking was talking about when the children of Israel came out of the uh, out of the land of Egypt, and they started to pass into the Promised Land. They went through this area. I, I think it was Kiriath Jerim, down in the the Negev Desert, where you, they got they get one inch of rain a year. And you got to know that you're in God's will when you're going through that area as an ancient people. Okay, so they know what it means to thirst. And in fact, um, we may not know because. Uh, what it's like for this to happen, because there might be a few moments in our life where we know what it is to thirst, and we know what it is to be hungry, but most of us don't live with that sustained concern for food and water. We expect that when we walk to the faucet and turn it on, drinkable water is going to come out. Or we open up the refrigerator, and you can find something in there that can sustain you, right? Right? We, is that like our regular fare? Is anybody outside that? Come see me afterwards because I want to help you. But I think we all understand that that's the case, right? There's, there's the, the knowledge that we know. We don't know desperate hunger like they knew. In, in Bible times, you're, you're one famine away from your whole family dying. And uh, that's just not the case we live with. And so we, we don't. We don't live exactly with that kind of mindset, but we don't need to feel guilty about that. This is, this is God's blessing. But what we ought to do is recognize that Jesus first hears, and for many people since then, it would have meant more than momentary discomfort if uh, they became hungry and thirsty. It would have sounded more like desperation for these things. So when we talk about hungering and thirsty, we're not just saying, you know, I'm a little bit hungry. How many of your kids have ever said to you, Mom, I'm starving. They're not starving. They could last 30 more days without food, right? Oh, he'd go a long time without food. Water, that's a different story. It's just two or three days. But, you know, um, oftentimes when we say it, we don't mean it like they would have meant it. So there's a desperation for these kinds of things. And you can see it within Scripture, this hunger and thirst uh, being vividly expressed desire. The sons of Korah, they sang Psalm 42. They wrote Psalm 42, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I come and meet with God? Psalm 63, verse 1 through 5, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I will be fully satisfied with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. And your labor, uh, sorry, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without honey and without cost, without money and without cost. And do it without honey, too, if you want. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what will not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. John six thirty five. Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me 
will never be thirsty. And Jesus said to the woman at the well, I can give you water and you'll never thirst again. Okay, so there's something in here that lies at the back of this hungering and thirsting that has to do with God. Jesus specifically is raising up the issue of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says, the Lord Jesus calls those uh, blessed who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He means those who desire above all things to be entirely conformed to the mind of God. They long not so much to be rich or wealthy or learned as to be holy. Blessed are all such. They shall have enough one day. I shall awake after God's likeness and be satisfied, Psalm seventeen fifteen. So what, is, what does this look like exactly? I'm, I'm suggesting to you this has to do with a desire to be personally righteous. I mentioned that you could split that one side down to be righteous, to imputed righteousness and lived righteousness. I don't think that probably at that moment they had the, a full enough understanding of imputed righteousness to be desiring that. I think what they wanted, they wanted to be right before God. Okay? They wanted to be right before God. Uh, and so what does this look like? I think it, it starts with a vision of the beauty of God's holiness. And you'll remember that during that day, there was a preacher that was going about dressed like a wild man. And he was dwelling in remote places and he was asking people to come be baptized. What was his name? John the Baptist. Thanks for playing along with that. You knew who it was, didn't you? And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Yeah, he said that to a certain group of people, didn't he? And, uh, yeah, you brood of vipers, and the axe is laid to the root. And he came after him. But the message was, it's not enough for you to consider yourself descendants of Abraham. You need to be righteous. And they weren't righteous. Their lives were filled with a lumpy mess of sin. And you remember what he said? Make straight the paths. In the Bible, what that would have meant was that our lives are going a straight direction, not veering to the right or the left. Because uh, the life of morality was seen as a, a straight path, a journey, a walk with God, not veering off into ditches, right? Remember how Jesus talked about the blind leading the blind and they both fall into the ditch? It's a problem that you can go too far on left, too far on the right, you need to walk the straight path. So he says, make straight paths. Prepare the way. Make a level road. Why? So the king can walk on it. Preparing, he's preparing the way for Jesus to come into these lives, and he's doing so by calling God's people to repentance. It's not enough for you to declare that you're a child of Abraham. Nobody was saved because they were Abraham's descendant. I want to be clear about that. Everyone is saved by putting faith in, in Christ. Even in the Old Testament, they didn't know his name, but they were anticipating a future Savior, even way back then, back with Adam and Eve. Remember what God said to Eve? You will have a descendant, a male descendant, and the serpent will bite his heel, but you ultimately will crush his head. This is known in theology as the Proto-Evangelion or Proto-Evangelion. It's the gospel preached ahead of time. It's the first preaching of the gospel. And so Eve thinks there's going to come a descendant that's going to destroy the evil one. 
So already back in the Garden of Eden, she's looking forward to a Messiah, though she doesn't know his name. She doesn't know the full scope of who he is, but it's, it's a very primitive faith in a Messiah. And you think that that's, that's not it. Through Abraham, through your seed, Paul says seed, not as many, but as one, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, brought into the favor of God. So the gospels preached Abraham, and he, he played it out on the mountain, didn't he, when he got ready to sacrifice his son? You think we didn't know, they didn't know something God was going to do? They did. They were looking forward to a Messiah, to a Savior. At times they got it wrong, but they were expecting God would redeem them from their sins. And so they had their faith in them, in him. And, of course, David had an understanding of that, too, in Second Samuel 7. And so there's this anticipation in that. It's not about so much being a descendant of Abraham as it is of trusting in the Lord and his Messiah for salvation. And so they're looking forward to this kind of thing. How does, how does this all start, this hungering and thirsting for, for righteousness? I mean, we, I think we have to some extent something that God's put within us is a recognition of the beauty of goodness. Do you know what I mean by that? That we may not like it, we might be offended by it because we're not good, but I think there's something in us that sees the beauty of a, an innocent child and says there's beauty in that. Okay, there's, there's something in us that sees when somebody is truly good to see beauty in that. We see beauty in that. I think it's innate. Even though, because of our fallen nature, we don't have the capacity to do that. We still see the beauty in it. Okay, so I think there's something that to be said for that. But I think really what it, what happens is it starts with a vision of the beauty of His holiness. We meet God in we meet in God uh, one so pure that He has beauty beyond description. He is perfect beauty. There's there is moral beauty in Him that we may long to possess. Fortunately for us, uh, holiness is one of those communicable attributes of God. You know what I mean by communicable? That means something that we can receive from him, something that we can have, we can share between us, his holiness. Can we share the omnis? What are the omnis? Omniscience, which is what? All-knowing. We might think we're all-knowing. We're not. (laughs) What's the other one? There's two more, actually. All-powerful, omnipotent, okay? omnipresent, and we wish you could be there. Somebody was making the case recently that uh, we attempt to live that kind of life through our cell phones. We feel like we can be almost anywhere present. We can know all things. We've got little computers in the back of our pocket that know it all, or presume to know it all. It's one thing to have information. It's another to have knowledge. We can't share those qualities with God. And I'm going to tell you, in my honest opinion, this is my opinion, I don't see it anywhere in Scripture, but I don't see the alternative either. I don't think even in eternity we become any of the omnis. I think we still are growing in knowledge of God every day through eternity, and there's enough of Him to keep us enamored. Okay? I think that's different. I think God's character is different in that way. And his person is different in that way than ours and his infinitude. And there are other things. But one thing that he said we should share and he revealed that he wants to share with us is his holiness. He says, be holy for I am holy. 
wants to share His holiness. And this is the beauty of who He is. And so we need, I think, an awakening to that sense of moral beauty that's found in God. And we can meet that in Christ. And so we need this awakening to God's holiness or moral beauty, His perfection. And to do so is to understand that He is more than just perfectly good. He's radiantly and beautifully good in moral perfection. In other words, there's, I can't describe this in words, but there's something about Him in His moral beauty that will draw us to perfect goodness if we only could see it. Not right? So uh, we are awakening to His moral goodness. And the third thing is awakening to our own unholiness. Could we save that till the end, Sierra? Thank you. Awakening to our own uh, unholiness, which is where uh, a contrast starts to happen. We see ourselves in light of moral perfection, and we say with Isaiah, Woe is me, I'm undone. Have you thought about this for a moment? In Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah has already had a prophetic ministry. He knows something of God's holiness. Would you agree with that? So we've got five chapters there of prophetic ministry happening. He knows something about God's holiness, which suggests to me that this is an ongoing revelation that we need to have. So he meets the holy God in um, Isaiah chapter 6 in a, in a more complete way. What are the, what are the uh, seraphim saying there? Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. Okay, so we have in English, we have um, a positive statement. It's just some kind of statement that's made. And then we have the comparative statement. And then we have the superlative statement, which means uh, a regular statement would be holy. Okay? A comparative statement would be holier. Okay? This is holier than that. The superlative statement is the holiest. Okay? So that takes it to the nth degree. In Hebrew, one of the ways that would be communicated was by repetition. And so to say God is holy is the positive statement. To say he's holier than us is the comparative statement. To say he's, uh, well, let me go back. To say he's holy is the positive. To say he's holy, holy is the comparative. To say he's holy, 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 that's superlative. He's the holiest of all. And so in his moral beauty, anytime we who are sinful flesh come into any kind of close proximity to that holiness, there ought to be, by contrast, an awareness of our own unholiness. And in fact, as we do that, I think Isaiah's story shows us that we, he may have had an encounter before with the Holy God that called him to be a prophet. And then at some time later in his walk, he meets God in a new way, and that is expanded. Like, he didn't see the fullness, and he still didn't see the fullness, but he saw more completely the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And so I think that's, that's important to understand is that we may come to a place in our walk with God where we see His holiness in a greater way. And what that may do to us is two things. One, it may show us that the closer we get to God, the more we feel unworthy of Him in ourselves. And that's a natural thing, okay? In ourselves. Make sure you're clear on that because I know we could take issue with that kind of thought. Like we should be uh, accepted in God's presence. You are, but not because of your own holiness, right? 
We are because of imputed righteousness that's given to us through Christ. But then the other thing that happens as a side effect is that is that we hunger and thirst to be more, more, more like him in righteousness and true holiness. Do you, you see what I'm saying? It's that when we encounter God in this way, it calls us upward while at the same time we recognize the greater distinction between us and him. That's kind of an, a paradox, isn't it? That we recognize how much greater he is, but, but what we need to come out of is this understanding that we're good, we're all good, and nobody needs to make any moral improvement or grow. And the reason we've come to that is we've stopped in contrast to God. We've not seen the, the vision of his holiness. What we've done is we've brought holiness down to the level of humanity, and we've compared ourselves among ourselves. And Paul says those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. It's not wise to do that. God's the comparison in Romans 3.23. It says all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The glory of God in that passage is moral beauty. We fall short of his moral beauty, his perfection in terms of his morality. And so we, we stand in need of him. And, of course, Jesus' sinless life was full of moral beauty. You heard me right, right? Sinless life, right? Not sinful, sinless life. It was full of moral beauty. And I think this is one of the reasons why you find people being so uh, magnetically drawn to him is that they'd never seen goodness in the flesh like they saw in Jesus. The kids, I mean, Jesus was a, a person of authority. Everybody recognized his authority. Are you with me? Sometimes people with authority can be scary. But the Bible says that the kids played around him. Isn't that interesting? That they saw something of his moral beauty. And I think a lot of times kids have a keen moral perception. Jesus' sinless life was full of moral beauty, and it attracted people. We all know the will of God is for us to be like him. And so the wake-up that many of us need to have is to realize our own failures up against God's holiness. And it's only then that we can start to crave the holiness that God have, has for us. We need to start with the smallest desire, if we have, have one, to, to be like Him and let that grow into a, a raving appetite to be righteous, to stand righteously before God, and also to live righteous. You know, there's, there's two aspects of righteousness when it comes to the Christian life, and it's important that we understand this. One is imputed righteousness. This is uh, when Paul says, uh, I want to know him, not having a righteousness of my own by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Okay? There's an imputed righteousness, which means, imputed just means that Jesus' righteousness was applied to our account. Aren't you glad for that? That's true. You're positionally righteous when you come to Christ, even though you still may be working out some problems. Then there's another aspect of righteousness, which is righteous behavior, in which we're called to a practical righteousness, where we call, we're called to, Paul says it this way, um, that you're, we're to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. In a manner worthy, which means uh, worthy, the word for worthy is uh, axion or axios in Greek, and it means to be in the scales. So Jesus has put this great calling upon our life to righteousness, 
And so we need to bring our lives to live up to that. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? That, that we've got this great calling. He calls us saints, holy ones. And do you know that he, Paul, when he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls the Corinthians holy ones. And they got, a, they got problems in their church, don't they? Some sinful problems in their church. He calls them holy ones. And, and what that means is that he's probably referring to them as holy ones to inspire them to understand righteousness has been imputed to them through Christ, but they need to live up to that. They're not just you're not just an everyday Christian. Nobody's an everyday Christian. You're saints. So we have to live up to the calling that we've received. Just a couple minutes here, but let me finish this. What does it mean that they shall be filled? We start with this smallest desire, and we ask God to fill it. And we need to ask Him to show us His moral beauty, if we dare. It might wreck us. In a good way. Anybody been ruined in a good way by God? He showed you something and like you can never be the same again even if you wanted to be. I mean, you could be, you could go back to your sinful life, but you would go back knowing the reality of what it's like to live in God. So you'd never really be the same as you were before. So God uh, can do that in our lives and if we dare to do that, He will. It says they shall be filled they shall be filled. If your hunger is for righteousness and we seek it like food and water, we'll be filled with righteousness. How's that going to be? How's it going to be that you could be filled with this kind of righteousness or get, get to the fullest what you're craving? Well, I think the first thing is that Christ will credit his own righteousness to our account. And though I don't think this would have been what the people who were hungering in Jesus' day were exactly thinking of or what they had in mind. I think they probably they wanted to really be righteous. They didn't want to they didn't want to be unrighteous. They wanted to be in right standing with God. And that's important to keep in mind that righteousness is to be right in God's eyes. Okay? First in standing, then in behavior. That's righteousness. Okay? The eyes of the Lord. Keep that in mind because in our day uh, we're like the book of Judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And the biblical standard is what is right in the eyes of God. That's the biblical standard. So what happens, the first thing is, I think the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, Christ will credit righteousness to our account. The second is the Holy Spirit will build Christ's character or grow Christ's character within us if we'll cooperate in faith. Okay. Um, in Romans 8, it says that those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And in Galatians 5, 22 and following, uh, it tells us to keep in step with the Spirit, and this is what's going to take place, is that we're going to grow fruit. right? And that fruit is the character of Christ. If you look at that, all of the things that are mentioned within the fruit is the character of Christ being grown within us. And so he wants to build or grow the character of Christ as we cooperate in faith. And we will, he will, he will, if we'll allow him to and we'll cooperate with him, perfect our righteousness until we either die or Christ returns. Look, we can't just go like, I'm past all that sanctification stuff. I've already 
got that figured out. And personally, I don't believe in entire sanctification in the sense that sometimes been preached in the Wesleyan tradition, where you have a second baptism, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you're entirely sanctified, and you no longer sin. You can stop sinning with God's help, but it's not just like that. Okay, so they believed in that second work. My dad grew up in a church that believed that. And uh, what he found is they just adjusted their terminology. So when you started to sin in that tradition, you didn't sin anymore because you'd been sanctified. So you made mistakes. It's all semantics. (laughs) And uh, that's not exactly right. If you sin, you sin. Let's call it what it is. But he's going to do it till Christ returns. He who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And then third, third step in this whole process is that we will be perfect in righteousness in the coming life. Those who trust in him, he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. And, and this is why we are considered blessed if, you're, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you ought to know uh, you're blessed because God will work out that within us. You know, as I said, John the Baptist preaching, Jesus is preaching, the disciples preaching was repent, a call to repentance. How does somebody see the need for that? Well, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, an encounter with God, it could be either spectacular or unspectacular. Like Not every encounter with God is you're caught up into the third heaven. Okay, Sometimes the encounter with God is the preached word comes and you feel convicted. And that is an encounter with God. And we ought to understand that. And so we, we let God work in our heart in that way. And then the second thing is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the word, And then we come to an honest agreement with God. What do I mean by honest agreement? Confession is honest agreement. Confession means to share the same word. Think about that. When God says we're sinful, and in Psalm 51, David says, your judgments concerning me are right. That's confession of sin. That I agree, Lord, that what you've said about me is true. I, I'm not going to try to justify it. I'm not going to try to skirt around it. I'm not going to try to put a new spin on it. I'm not going to use a semantical game. If you've said it about me, it's true. That's confession of sin, is to share the same word with God. So this kind of thing can come at any moment, this hunger and thirst. We have to allow that to grow. And that needs to grow in direct proportion to our self-assurance shrinking. See, it's, it's cheap grace which um, accepts the gift of righteousness without appropriating righteousness in our lives. Or it's, it's wrong to take the gift of imputed righteousness where he gives it to our account and not to live out personal righteousness as a response. And I'm not talking about some of the silly stuff we got caught up in in the past, like how you wear your hair and whether you go to the movies or not. That might be an outworking that God has for you. But there's some different things. We've made it all about um, some kind of externals instead of an internal commitment and dedication to the Lord that works itself out in practical ways. 
And I'd like to take some time to talk about that, but we don't have time tonight to do that. But I, I do know that there's a lot of people who have turned away from holiness because their definition of holiness was tainted by a misapplication or a legalism. And so what we need is we need true righteousness. Hearts that have been changed, minds that have been changed, and lives that work that out in the day-to-day, that live righteously before God, distinct from the way we used to live, distinct from the world. And I'm going to tell you, worldliness is primarily an attitudinal thing, even more than a behavioral thing. That comes later. That's included, included with it. But I think first, it's an attitude of the mind. So Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Their desire is to stand right before God. We want to do that. I hope that's where your heart's at tonight. If it's not, would you be daring enough to say, Lord, show me a glimpse of your holiness and let me be provoked to be holy like you. Amen? All right. Why don't you stand with me? We're gone a few minutes over. Sierra, did you have a question or a comment? Good. Thank you. I think I think I think that's right on. That when we see Jesus, I think he's gonna he's got something about him that's gonna cause us not to be the same. We're gonna be polarized. Either we'll go further in our rebellion or we'll draw close to him. I don't think you can encounter Jesus and remain the same. It's gonna cause us to polarize. And so we either get harder in our hearts or we're gonna be drawn to him. And I, I think it has something to do with his his moral beauty, his life makes all the difference. And so if we dare to call upon him and encounter him, I think it's going to drive us to be more like him. And folks, there's something that we need today in the church. There's a book that was written a while back by David Wells called uh, Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Regain Its Moral Vision. We need to regain that. And the way it's going to happen is when we see God for who he is. So uh, I've talked quite a bit here. So Let's uh, draw it to a close. And if you have any questions, come see me. We'll talk about it. Father, thank you, Lord, for um, showing us that you are moral perfection. And Jesus in the flesh was moral perfection for us, demonstrated. And I pray, God, that you would help us to want to be like you. And if we're not wanting to be like you, show us what's wrong. Show us what's wrong, what's keeping us there. Maybe it's the deceitfulness of sin or the enticement of the world or some kind of blinders that we've allowed ourselves to be put back under. We've, uh, we've found freedom, but we've been entangled again in a yoke of bondage. I pray, God, that you break that free and help us to see so that we can be the beautiful church, a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing because we, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.